The, uh, the topic of racism is something the church wants to avoid at all costs, isn't it? We don't hear talked about much in church. Uh, I think the, the tendency is to, if you don't talk about it, maybe it'll go away. It's kind of like uh, the same logic as if you have a noise in your car, you turn up the radio and it, nothing's wrong with your car. You know, it doesn't work. Uh, but yet we seem to want to avoid it. And uh, I'm not going to avoid it anymore. We're going to have the conversation today. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. But we're all, uh, all going to buckle our seatbelts and we're going to um, open our hearts, hopefully. My prayer is that you would open your heart today to, uh, to have understanding and learn and grow and to, um, to hear a different perspective of maybe what you're used to, uh, depending on what, uh, where your history is or your background or where you're coming from. And uh, my prayer today is that we would all open our hearts to what the Lord would want, that we would be kingdom-minded people first. And we cannot continue to shy away from these difficult conversations. Because here's the deal, church. Racism is real and it is evil. We would all agree on that, right? All of us. It's from the devil. Well, who is better equipped to deal with evil things that are real than the church? We are the ones that are equipped to deal with it because we're the ones with the Holy Spirit. You know, none of us can fight against the devil on our own. Nobody. Against him, we're powerless, but with the Spirit of God in us. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So that Spirit is in us. So we as a church should be leading the fight against this evil, evil entity called racism. And I'm going to encourage you guys today to go on this, this journey with me. We're not, we're not trying to be offensive. We're not trying to upset anybody. But also know that it's important that we hear, that we open our hearts to have understanding and not just talk to people that think the same way we do, look the same way we do, have the same background as we do. We do expand and open our hearts to other things. And I'm going to be incredibly transparent with you right now. I do not like to talk about race in church. I don't want to. I, my hope, when, when this first started happening a few weeks ago with the death of George Floyd, one of my first thoughts was when I started seeing everything that was happening, it broke my heart. But what, really what was uh, the driving force in me was, man, I hope that this settles down soon and we can just go back to normal. And I'm just being honest with you. That was my heart. And the Lord actually convicted me of that and said, I don't want normal. I want better. I want us to be better than we were, not just for this to die down so that we can go back to the way it was, but to actually bring healing and walk in victory in the church and let that infiltrate into our society and in our communities. And I believe that's what the Lord wants for us, is that we wouldn't just want to go back to normal. You know, this, this pandemic has caused the same thing. A lot of people just want it to go away so we can get back to normal. I have felt for three months that the Lord does not want us to get back to normal. Because I can tell you one of the things that broke my heart before all of this happened is that I feel like the church is very anemic. I feel like we are just comfortable kind of doing our thing and moving along and we're not really heartbroken and, and passionate about winning our culture, to win the people that God has put in our lives. We're kind of content to do our thing. And so it can't be okay for us to keep doing what we're doing, including in the area of racism. Now you may say, well, I'm not racist. Well, good. I don't know that we have racist people here at New Hope. We have a very diverse church. I'm very happy for that. That's one of the biggest things, the, one of the biggest areas of pride we have in this church is knowing that we are very multicultural. And it's a beautiful thing, especially when we have international potlucks in January. Amen. Amen? One of the best nights of the year. I feel sorry for every church that isn't us on that night, you know. And it's something we should be celebrating. But at the same time, there are, there are, 
there's aspects in our society that we have to open our hearts to and open our eyes to and find out where we can be part of the solution. Because I want to read a verse to you that I just can't ignore. It's in Proverbs 3, or Proverbs 31, actually, verses 8 and 9. It says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That is our call as followers of Jesus, is that we would defend the rights of the poor and needy, that we would speak up for those that may not be able to speak for themselves. And I'm here to tell you today, church, the world does not need a church that approaches this, this issue passively. If the best we can offer is to say, well, you know, our, church, our doors are open for anybody that would come. We're welcoming to anybody. If that's the best we can offer, it's not enough. It's a good thing, but it's not enough. The world doesn't need a church that's just going to open their doors to anybody. The world needs a church that's going to be on the front lines of fighting this battle and taking, bringing the Holy Spirit into this situation with the hands and the feet that he gave us to be part of the solution. And you know what I found by, by trying to gain understanding? You know, over the last few weeks, I have purposed in my heart to gain understanding to the point of exhaustion for myself. I've had a lot of conversations with, with people that don't look like me and don't have the same background as me. And you know what I've learned over the last few weeks? That my perspective that I had a month ago isn't necessarily completely accurate. That there are different perspectives that just because it's not the same as mine doesn't mean it's wrong. And what I found out is that in the black community, there is a lot of people that are very brokenhearted over what's been happening. A lot of broken hearts. There are a lot of people that are really scared, genuinely scared. And there are a lot of people in the black community that feel dismissed and cast aside. And for me, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is not okay with me. And I'm going to do my part, and I am done wanting to be right or wanting to be with people that agree with me. We cannot focus on just being right. And tr we have to open our hearts to under try to understand where other people are coming from. Because there, are more than, there is more than one perspective in this world. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I want to tell you my, my biggest struggles in, in a situation like this I have two, two big struggles. One is that I can tend to be a little dismissive. Not, not necessarily just of racial things, but in life in general sometimes when, when issues can come up, if it's something I can't solve right away, I can tend to be a little bit dismissive because in my mind a lot of times I feel like it'll probably work itself out. You know? And a lot of times situations do work themselves out. We don't have to fight every battle that comes down the pike, right? And so I can be dismissive. Well, my wife will tell you there's times that I'm dismissive that it's not good when we're having our fellowship, you know? And, it, and this is one of those situations where being dismissive is not okay. Because, this, because the, the black community has felt dismissed for a long time. And so I don't wanna be dismissive, but on the other side of that, I don't wanna pander. I have seen lots and lots of pandering in the last few weeks. And that annoys me almost as much as being dismissive because pandering is not genuine, it's disingenuous. So I don't want to be disingenuous and, and throw a token thing out there to our, our communities of color and give them something to where I feel better about myself, but I want to really do something that's going to help create the atmosphere and the culture in this place that will create lasting change. And I want to be part of that. So I, I'm not a brown noser, and I, I, I'm, I can, I've been told that I'm naive to some degree, but I can sniff out a brown noser in a heartbeat, and I do not like it. It doesn't do well for me when I feel like you're sucking up to me because that tells me you don't care about me. You're you care about what you can get from me. And so we don't need to be pandering either. We need to have real, honest conversations 
and talking about what is going on in our society. So I'm going to ask Kel to come up. Come on up, Kel. Give him a hand as he uh, comes onto the stage. And uh, I've asked Kel to come and share with us today a little bit, and him and I are going to have a little back and forth. I'm going to ask him some questions. We're just going to try to have a little conversation up here. Um, let me just introduce him. Most of you know him as, as Jessica's counterpart up here, the level-headed one that, that makes sense. Uh, Jessica plays the role of the, the uh, other person very well. But as I said in the first service, it is a role she plays. That is not her. She is actually amazing. So that's why she's willing to do that. <laughs> um, but Kel has, uh, has served this church in many ways. Right now he's on our deacon board. Uh, he's had connect group. He, he, he's ministered playing basketball down in the other building with, with kids that aren't even part of our church. For years and years he did that. Um, but most of all, he is, he is one of my best friends. Uh, he's been one of my best friends for about nine years now. And um, he, in fact, him and his wife, Cece, and their kids are family to us. Uh, they... They have, he has been through the fire with me. He's been with me in some of my worst times and, and lifted me up and been as, I don't know if I could say there's another person in my life that's been more of an encouragement other than my wife. And um, I'm just really thankful for you and for him. And uh, they, uh, you know, they spend holidays at our house. They come over and eat our food all the time. And um, we've been on vacation together. We've been to New York City. We've been to Cuba. And we went on a missions trip together to Brazil. So uh, we've been literally all over the place. And, um, you know, when Joy and I talked about wanting to do this, it wasn't, it, we didn't even have to think about it, who we wanted to be up here. We, it was immediate that we wanted to kill because we know his heart. And, um, you know, him and I have had race conversations long before these last few weeks, many times. And we don't always see eye to eye on everything, uh, but we always walk away being better for it. And, and I've learned a lot from him. And uh, I'm sure he's learned some things not to say from me. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a small town up in Northeast Ohio, and my whole town was pretty much white. And I didn't have a lot of perspective until I left and went into a multi-generational, multicultural uh, missions organization, worked with them for five years, spent a year in Africa. So I do have some perspective, but uh, I've had much more in my conversations with Kel because I know his heart. His heart is to bring people together and to make us all better. So... Um, so thanks for joining us today, Kel. And I, I would be remiss, Pastor Summers, if I didn't say this. Um, a lot of you don't know this, and him and Joy would probably kill me if I even put it out there to the church. But when this first came about, it kind of shows you the testament of the leadership we have here at the church. Um, they gathered a group of us and said, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on, and I don't understand it from your perspective, and I want to learn. It shows humility in leadership and it doesn't matter if you're african-american white woman asian hispanic they would have been there with that heart and genuinely genuinely from the bottom of my heart i appreciate that just from the church body as well um i want to tell you guys too this is not political you can get enough of that at home or your new favorite news outlet and as a black man i'm not speaking for all black people we're uniquely gifted and have our own different stories, but I do want to just share my heart and perspective, and I, I thank you for this, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Kel. Um, and that's, that's really where I want to start, even with you. Just, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure everybody knows, I want to kind of piggyback on what Kel just said. This, this is not, this is to break down the us versus them mentality. You know, the, the enemy has done a great job of creating a wedge between races, between political leans, 
between cultural things, between socioeconomical areas. It's just this we and them. But you know, that's the opposite of what, we're our, what God calls us to be. We are designed to be unified. Jesus said, let them be one as you and I are one, Father. So that is what this is for. Um, this is a safe place. Uh, and I'm just asking you to, to have your heart and your mind open during this time. So, Kel, just start off by kind of telling us um, a little bit about your testimony and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, so uh, a little bit about my background. Um, I guess to know me, to kind of understand where I came from is kind of even before me. And my grandmother had four children. My mom was the youngest, and they lived in inner city Atlanta in project homes. And for the first several years of my life, I was raised, I was raised there. And everybody around me looked just like me, poor community. But we were all family, and we, we, we loved each other very much. And my mom decided to join the military. And when she had joined the military, she took me out of um, the Deep South and we moved to Michigan. And it was a total culture shock. I went from everybody looking like me, warm weather, to nobody looking like me and shoveling five feet of snow out of the, <laughs> the, the driveway. Um, but I learned a lot there too. Um, that was one of the first places I realized from others that I was, I was different that I look different. Uh, my mom has a, a story about my, my kindergarten teacher there and how she encountered kind of racism there. And I had a battle on the, the, the bus, a literal battle. I got, I got into a fight with a couple of kids because I was sitting in a seat because I, I wasn't supposed to be there. And it, it kind of took you, you know, back to 1960s from there. But I have some of my fondest memories too, like some of my closest friends that I first started to spend the night, it came from there too. So it was great, great memories. So I went from there and we moved to Germany and another culture shock, but I'm used to it at this time. I'm used to assimilating. And, but this time it was a military atmosphere, so all the kids knew that they came from different places, and you're kind of used to that as a military brat. Um, but our first, I'd say, eight months there, we stayed in a small German village, and it was two black families. So that was completely different. We actually stayed on a property where the guy in the back was about 80 years old, didn't speak a lick of English. And my mom will recall stories of us being back there, not knowing what we're saying, but smiling and having fun with each other. But that was a complete culture shock. So kind of, you know, as they say, when in Rome or when in Germany, kind of do what the Germans do. Um, well, not World War II Germany, you don't want to <laughs> do what they do. But it was, it was kind of another culture shock for me as well then. And I moved back here. I went to, to school in the, um, in the South, graduated high school. And that was a little bit of a different experience too, because my school was probably 60, 40 white, black, but it was a split, it was a divide. Went on to college and then got here in Augusta. And through that time, I've had different church backgrounds just being a military kid. Like I started off in an all black church. You wear your suit and your three piece and, and, and all of that. And that's kind of where my roots started from. But then as I got older, I wanted to find out what Jesus was for myself. And I went around to different churches. I went to, to, to white churches, mixed churches, just all different churches just to find out who he was for myself. And this, what we have here, is more picture of heaven than anything. Amen. And it's beautiful. Amen. And so I've grown up more. I came to the New Hope um, in my 20s, but I can say I've grown up more in my life spiritually here than anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so this, uh, this whole this unrest we have right now in our community, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't seem to be de-escalating. It seems to be escalating. I'm sure many of you know last night Atlanta was, had all kinds of problems, and um, uh, it's, it's, it's such a unique situation we find ourselves in because... It's not the first time we've had social unrest in our society, but I feel like it's the first time we've had it to this degree where uh, everybody, most people are getting their perspective from social media, 24-hour uh, news cycle. Like you said, you look, watch the news that fits your lean more, and you, that's where you get your information, and 
there's even an agenda with the news organizations to give you information that they think you want to hear and leave out information they don't think you want to hear because they want to keep you watching their channel because they're selling advertising. It's about they're, they're making money in that too now. So um, in the midst of all of that, like what, what do you say that, the, that our role should be in, in dealing with this culturally based on the fact that we are in the information age and, how, and dealing with this differently than we would have had to even 20 years ago? Yeah, it's totally, totally different. Um, I even think about, like you, you mentioned, like this is not the first time we've seen it, but it's different because of social media, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine if MLK and the protests, they had social media, how different things may have turned out. And I, I would say even with social media, how I look at it is it can be such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I mean, it can unify the people all across the globe. You were a missionary, and just missionaries can give back feedback. It can be so, so unifying. But then on the opposite spectrum, it can be so divisive. Um, it's toxic in some ways. I think about Genesis and chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, they were building up, right? They wanted to build a tower to go to the heavens. They said, we want to build it for ourselves. And if you read later on, it says, we want to make a name for ourselves. And when I think about social media, you can get on social media and you can look for whatever lean you want to to make a name right. for yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and I would just I would just encourage you guys, um, and myself as well too, um, I know my wife, she, she posts a lot too on, on social media. When you're following these things and looking at these trends, and especially some of our young people, are you making a name for yourself or the voice you wanna hear, or are you building up the kingdom? And I think as kingdom-minded people, we have a responsibility to ask ourselves that question mm -hmm. and, and see what we're doing on that platform. Yeah, that's good. Because what I've noticed over the last few weeks, especially, social media brings out the best and the worst in people. Um, and I'll just be honest with you, a few days ago, I, I deleted it off my phone. I, I, just, I decided I just don't want it anymore because it's, there's just so much toxicity and, and um, divisiveness, even in the church. And it's really breaking my heart. And so I've gotten rid of it uh, for now, maybe forever. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I think as, as believers, we have to be very, very careful um, in where we're getting our information because you will... If you know the algorithms that Facebook and Instagram and all of them use, it is to give you information that they think you want to see and what you want to hear, and it'll feed your narrative so easily. And it, what that does is it also wedges a divide, a bigger divide between the other narrative, and we can become so one-sided and lopsided. So it's good. Um, so this, what, what we're finding ourselves in in our culture right now over these last few weeks, uh, it's obviously it's heartbreaking what we're seeing. Uh, do you think that the, the response that we're seeing, is it, is it more based on this isolated incident, or do you think there's more of a history there, that this is more of a culmination of, of, uh, of years or generations of things? How do you view it as a, as a black man? Well, well yeah, um, I, th I think the first thing I want to say is my heart goes out to George Floyd, mm -hmm. his family. Um, as a father of, of two men, I couldn't imagine losing a son and having to watch it and relive it on TV like that over and over. I don't, I don't think it matters what end of the spectrum you're on, you're just a man just losing his life like that. Um, the families, um, our nation is just torn and broken. So my heart goes out for our nation as well too. Um, the police officers, because they have, you know, they're sinners that need to be saved by grace just like I do. And their families that they're not talking or spoken about need us as well. And so when I look at this, I look at it as, 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 as potentially both, because I don't know what was going on in the mind or the hearts. I don't believe he woke up that morning and said, I'm going to kill someone. Um, 
I, I can see the callous look in his face as the, the camera's recording him and he takes the life out of that man. And, and I don't know if it was a, about a pride or a sense of I have this as a, as a white man over a black man. I don't know his heart and I'm not going to say that I do know that. But what I do know is that when you look at that instance, it's flashbacks in your mind because you see Ahmaud Arbery. You see Breonna Taylor, you see Tamir Rice, you see, um, you just see all these names that just come back and it's like, wow, and just hits you in the face. And you look at yourself as a black man and you look at yourself as your family and you say, wow, what's, what's happening here, God? What's, what's going on? And then you look at the history too, not just that. You look at the history of the peaceful protests in the 1960s and they would unleash German shepherds to men, women, and children. They would spray them down with water hoses, right? Um, you look at, at Emmett Till's situation um, in Mississippi where he was supposedly making a pass at a white lady and then these two men mutilated him and murdered him. And it came back later, I think 2016, where she said, yeah, it didn't happen like that. The year after they got acquitted, they admitted that they murdered him because they knew Double Jeopardy wouldn't be there. Even before that, you look at the slavery times. And during the slavery times, they had police units that would hunt down property, as they would call it, and mutilate them and make an example to say, you don't run away. So when you look at the bigger picture, you're like, yeah, there's some historical context there as well too. But I think when you look at it deeper as believers and Christians, it's not even black or white. It's not even racism, it's a spiritual thing. That's right. Ephesians 6 and 12, it tells us that we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's the dark world and the forces. Like that's what we're fighting against as Christians. And if we miss the enemy, then we're going to miss the mark, and we're going to be going back and forth in his devices. It's not me versus you. There's a spiritual realm that goes beyond that. And in verse 13, it starts to talk about the armor of God that we have, right? Like, this is the weaponry we use to fight with. And if we try to go on social media and attack people and have people agree with us, which has never worked. I don't think anybody's ever got anybody to agree with them on social media. But not use the breastplate of righteousness. And the one offensive weapon, he gives us the sword of the spirit. If we don't use those things, then I think we're missing, we're missing the mark. I would tell like even my, 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 my black brothers and sisters that are maybe listening online or that are here, like if we lined up and we, we had an injustice and there was a war and I gave them all knives and all the passion they had and I said, go, go attack. But the enemy had guns. We wouldn't go very far. And that's why we find ourselves in this roller coaster because the Christian church is not leading the way in that cause with the weaponry that we have. And it takes, it takes all of us. That's right. Amen. 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 It's true because uh, one thing I can say from, I mean, I grew up in the church, and I can say the church has not done a good enough job helping to bridge the gap between the races. You know, I mean, you've probably heard it said many times, the most segregated day of the week in the United States is on a Sunday. And again, I'm thankful for New Hope because I don't see that here. I see... I see a glimpse of what heaven looks like here. Uh, but the church at large has not done a very good job of, of bridging that gap. Um, so what would you say, what, how would you encourage us as a church to be able to, to do more to help bridge the gap and to, to bring unity between the races? No, that's a really good question. Um, I honestly believe it's, it's going to start with us. Um, I've seen a lot of things out there in the world that's giving answers about what we need to do. Um, a lot of it I don't even agree with, but the world is going to be the world. Like, they're never going to have the answer. There's no media outlet or, 
or, or Facebook post that we're going to go to that's going to give us the answer. Matter of fact, it tells us in Corinthians that the foolishness of, I mean, um, the wisdom of the world is the foolishness of God. That's right. So that just goes to show what perspective they have in this battle. Um, I, I think as the church, we have to be leaders. We have to be shouting out. We have to lead the calls. And the church hasn't always gotten that right. Um, if you look back early in history, I love history. And when slaves came over, about 1% of them were Christian. And during that time, the church would use the Bible to create a narrative to say that slavery was okay. And then once you came with 1963, 1863 with the emancipation, um, they went into reconstruction, separate but equal, and the church was kind of complicit. They were like, okay, we'll have ours, you have yours as well too. And so now, where the world is segregated, our kids are going to school together, we still have the most segregated place, like you said, on Sundays, and why is that? Right now, we'll say it's cultural differences and things of that nature, but it came from the church not stepping in. But we have a beautiful opportunity now where the church can step in, and where we have churches like ours that can step in and close that gap, and I think right. God's called us to be that bridge during this time. Mm -hmm. It's really good. That's good stuff. Um, so let me, let me talk a little more culturally outside of the church uh, for a minute. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a phrase we're hearing being thrown around quite a bit um, that there is systemic racism in our country. And I know that that immediately makes a lot of people's blood pressure go up, you know, for different reasons. And um, I, I want you to speak to that for a minute because uh, I think as a, for me as a white man, it, it's easy for me not to see that there's any systemic racism in our country. Um, and, and I can make that argument if you want me to, but I know that it's not completely built on fact. You know, I, I know that there, we, we look back to 400 years ago, 300 years ago, all the way back to 50 years ago, you could possibly say that. Today, it's easy for white America to think, you know, we've come a long way. You know, if, if you work hard, you can, you can make it. Um, it doesn't matter what color you are. You know, we have affirmative action that's helped out. We have, you know, even in the NFL, we have the Rooney Rule, where if you have an opening for a head coaching position, you have to hire or you have to interview at least one black person for that coaching job. And so we see that our country has made progress, but, uh, but I, I do think there's a perspective that you would have that me and, and my white brothers and sisters may not have. And so I want you to speak to that uh, and just speak honestly. So you want me to speak to systemic racism? Yes. <laughs> you don't have um, solve world hunger in there or something before <laughs> I get to that one? It's all right, Kel, we're gonna let you leave out the back door, so it's fine. So, so, so the first thing I would say to that is, um, changing the narrative, right? Um, right now we have the world leading the narrative on what it is and what it isn't. And like you mentioned, you can say that phrase and somebody will go here and somebody will go there. And I think the church can lead the way of like, what does that actually mean? What's the narrative behind that? And I think that's our responsibility. Instead of following the trail, we're leading the trail, being trailblazers um, through that. And so with systemic racism, I had a friend back in college and um, he didn't do much schoolwork. He kind of just was there in the dorm, smoking a lot of weed, and I guess he had a lot of thoughts. And so he told me, he said, he said, hey, Kel, he said, you know on the highway why they have white lines on the highway when you go? I said, I have no idea why they have white lines. He says, well, that's the way that the white man keeps the black man in his lane. I said, you sure it's not to illuminate the black asphalt? Because that makes it a lot more clear. And so you can go way on that end of the spectrum, which is totally ludicrous. And you can say there's systems in place for that, 
But then you can't go on the other end and say, okay, there's nothing there at all. Everything is good to go without doing what you're doing, asking questions and having different perspectives. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an economics guy. Um, that was my major in, in school. And I had a chance of really looking at a lot of financials of, of, of businesses. And I love to see how money works in the world with small businesses and things of that nature. And so when you look back at racism, before it was even black or white, it was green. Like there was an economic impact behind it, right? So if you got most of the slaves from the west coast of Africa and we had one leg and one arm, we wouldn't be very profitable and I'm pretty sure there wouldn't have been a transatlantic slave trade, right? It was profitable. Um, it was estimated about $3 billion at that time impacted the just the South's economic impact just mm -hmm. off of that. And so from that, once you had all the slaves emancipated, you had, some, you had black leaders that said, hey, we need to live and survive off of something. And so there, it could have been a totally different America now because they actually set up on North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia along that, that eastern seaboard land plots so there can be sharecropping for they can have 40 acres and a mule. Some of you guys have heard that. Um, once Abraham Lincoln died, they eradicated that. And then some of the white plantation owners said, hey, we don't have our income anymore. And they actually receive reparations from that because they had a loss of income. And so then you go on to a fast forward to 1932 where everybody was struggling, black, white, everybody, it was the Great Depression. You guys are familiar with that. FDR came out with, we're going to have mortgage-backed securities because at middle class, the number one way of generational wealth is equity in the home. And so there were programs put out so Middle-class people can get back on their feet, they can have home ownership, and they can pass that wealth on. Something at that time came out called redlining. And essentially what redlining is, is they would redline districts where they thought those loans would be too risky. And it was predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. So they couldn't even grow their wealth at the same. So they're kind of behind the eight ball with slavery, and now there's this. And so you might be looking at me like, okay, Kel, that's been a long time ago. You're, you're, you're talking, you know, 70 years now. But fast forward to, I was working for a company, and this was 2011 and 2012. And what they did is they targeted black pastors all across the United States, and they would have people go in to promote financial education, home building, um, I mean, building equity in home, home buying, helping them with programs. That sounds great. I was actually indirectly a part of that. So we would go out, and I love to, to educate and give people financial literacy, things of that nature. And we'd go out to those churches, and I went to one, and we'd give their patrons just information. And they would make a donation to the church, the people would get the mortgage. It sounds great, right? It sounds like a great program. What they would do is they would put those people in subprime mortgages. And those subprime mortgages, if you know anything about that, they would have variable rates, they can escalate, and people would lose their houses. Same company was fined over $200 million for systematically doing that. So firsthand, I've been a part of it, mm. and actually on the different side that you, than you would think, I was on the part of actually enabling that, and I didn't even know at the time. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's one of the things too, when you say that, we have to define the narrative, we have to be understanding of what's going on, but then we also have to go back to what I said before, actually knowing how to target that and what the, who the enemy is. Mm -hmm. That's good. So what would, you, what would your hopes be for uh, the white community to help be a solution um, to all of this that we're talking about and dealing with today? Um, I, I think it starts with this. I think it starts with dialogue. But on top of that, it's not just you, it's me. 
and I have to be a bridge and a safe place for you to be able to come, come and talk. And then I need to be willing to listen to you because you have experiences. You have things that I'm not educated on about you as well too. Um, if it's one of those things where I feel like you have to just come to, I, you just have to come to me whenever you're, whenever you're ready, whenever you think about it, and you better have your five-point PowerPoint plan to tell me how you, it's not that at all. It's relationships, it's dialogue, it's conversation, it's knowing each other, and I think that's what's missing. Um, I, I think about this too, my son is five years old, and um, he came in the other night, just kind of in the middle of the night, he was just crying and screaming, he said he was scared. And he said there was something outside of his, his, his room. And I know it's that pesky squirrel that kind of kind of keeps coming. <laughs> and I could have totally dismissed him like, be a man, boy. Go back into the bed. It's nothing wrong. You'll wake up in the morning and everything will be fine. But what kind of father would I be? Like, I understood. I embraced him. And I said, hey, I don't understand. Kind of tell me your fear. And I'm not saying it's a father and son's horse relationship. But when there's something we don't understand, the Bible teaches us to have compassion mm -hmm. for our neighbor and to be able to, to talk into that. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're kind of... Uh you're kind of getting into the practicality of this, which is good because, you know, we, we don't want to just have conversations. This is a good start, but this can't be the end either because, you know, it's like we say prayer is important. You know, last week, if you were here last Sunday night, we had a prayer time together and it was powerful. And I believe we poked holes in the enemy's armor, you know, and made a, made a dent in that. And it was a powerful evening. But, you know, if all we do is pray and we don't do anything, nothing happens. You know, I make the analogy, if, if I pray God... I need a, I want some six-pack abs, God, and all I do is pray, but I'm not willing to do any crunches, ain't getting the six-pack. Now, I'm not probably getting it even with crunches, but I'm definitely not getting it if all I do is pray, right? So there's practical side to it, too. So what are, what are some practical things you think we can do to continue this, uh, this, if you would want to call this progress or a step in the right direction, what are some practical things we could do to, to continue as a church? Um, I think the, the, the one thing we need to do is be the church and how Jesus called us to be the church, right? So um, he asked us a, a couple things. Like if you look in John, he says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of the story in Luke 10 where you had, the, um, you had the expert of the law and he came and he said, what can I do to inherit the kingdom of, of heaven? And then he goes, well, what does it say? It's written. You know, he already knew, but he said, what does it say? And then he asked the question, he goes, and how do you perceive that? So we all have a narrative in the Bible that we could make it lean to how we want to. But when Jesus said, do something, I think he actually meant, let's do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he went on and um, he went on and told him the law, you know, love your God, love, love your Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And the second one's just like that. Love your neighbor. And so I, I can picture Jesus going back like, okay, yeah, you got that. That's good to go. Let me go and finish preaching. But then he asked another question, and it says because he wanted to be justified. And I think we want to be justified sometimes, right? Yep. And he goes, well, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, I can just see the smirk on his face. I was waiting for you to ask me who your neighbor was. <laughs> and so he goes on the story of the Good Samaritan, and you have the two righteous people that pass by, but then you have the Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Jewish culture at that time, they were kind of hostile enemies. It was a race relations that we're kind of seeing today. But that Samaritan went in and picked the person up and went above and beyond. And at the end, he asked him a question. He goes, so which one was his neighbor? And he says, the one that showed mercy. Right. And I think that's what we're missing, like identifying who our neighbor is and then showing mercy and showing compassion through that. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. And that's the thing. And that's why, you know, that's why I've been having conversations over the last couple of weeks. It's not just because I'm the pastor of this church. It's because I genuinely care about people. And so I have to 
uh, step out and be willing to have those conversations with people that may not think like me or, or look like me or culturally even uh, have the same types of backgrounds. You know, we have to be willing to, uh, to go that extra mile because otherwise it's just talk and banter and nothing changes from that. And uh, we have to be very, very careful to make sure that we're intentional about it. So that's great. Well, Kel, I appreciate you sharing today. Um, I'm going to let you go down. Everybody give Kel a hand. I just want to close out the service. Um, let me read a verse to you out of Proverbs 4 and verse 7. It says, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? Though it costs all you have, get understanding. See, I think a lot of us would think, I already have understanding. I feel like I got a good handle on it. There's always more to be had. There's more to be had. And the reason we're having this conversation today is because our desire is that we would build unity. Church, unity is so important. And I believe unity is not, and I've said this many times, unity is not just being nice to each other. Unity is being willing to sacrifice for each other. It's being willing to say, you know what, even though I, I may disagree with you, I'm going to value you and your opinion and what you feel about a situation. And I'm even going to allow myself to not be right, to not have to be right, to not win the argument. Because there's not an, it's not an argument to be had. It's about a coming together as a body. Look what Paul said in uh, Galatians 3, verses 26 and 28. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to add their daughters. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul is making a very clear statement here that all this other stuff, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male, female, is all secondary. What is first and foremost is that we are one, we are clothed in Christ. That he, we are Christians before we are anything else. We are kingdom-minded before we are anything else. And if we will look at life through that perspective, it helps us to get into a place where we can never get on our own. Where we can be uh, okay to not have to uh, be understood, but to seek to actually understand the other person's perspective or another culture's perspective, whatever it is, whether black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Samoan, Native American, whatever it is, but to, but to not uh, approach our life in a way that we are easily offended or we want to be understood or we want to be right, but to seek to have unity in the body. Because if the church is unified, if we are unified as a body, we are so, so powerful. We are, we are a force to be reckoned with. The reason the church is not a factor right now in a lot of what's going on in our society is because nobody respects us because they see that we are divided. We are segregated on Sundays. Now, and again, New Hope, praise God, we're, we're doing a good job in that, but we could do so much better. We could do so much better. We have to be determined to be unified. We have to be determined to go into the enemy's camp and, and bind up that strong man so that we could steal what he has taken from us. And he has brought division, dissension, disunity, anger, hatred, bitterness, greed into this, into this argument. And the church has, by its apathy, has almost embraced it. 
And we cannot do that any longer. And I won't do it. And I pray that you, as, as people of new hope, that you will not be willing to allow that to continue either. That we will fight this battle. I'm going to ask you to stand with me because I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to be honest with you. I hope, I hope your feathers are a little ruffled today. I want us to have ruffled feathers. I want us to get out of our comfort zone. As I said, you know, my hope, my hope was that we'd go back to normal, and I got convicted of that quickly because I don't want normal. I want better. I want a new normal that's better than it's ever been. But we have to have hearts that are open. We have to have hearts that are moldable, hearts that are softened and, and good fertile soil for the fruit of God to be displayed in us. Because if the, if the fruit of God is in us, there is nothing we can't do. So let's fight this battle. Let, let's, let's seek this week to, to spend time with somebody that doesn't look like us and to hear them talk from their heart and vice versa. Let's do that. Let's, let's make an effort today. If it's just as much as, as going up to somebody and telling them you, you love them and that you appreciate them and saying a kind word to someone, something to help just start that conversation to bridge that gap. Let's be these agents of change and healing that we need so desperately in our country. So I'm just gonna ask you to receive this prayer. It's a prayer of faith, just receive it. Open your hearts as we pray. Jesus, we thank you today. God, we thank you because we know that you are here. We know that your plans for us are good and that the, the purpose that the enemy has in this racially tense time that we live in, God, that you can turn those plans for good. And Lord, we're gonna trust you to turn what the enemy meant for evil to good. And God, we ask that you would use us, that we would be your people, that we wouldn't just pray, that we wouldn't just hope that things get better, but we would be those people with the hands and feet that you gave us and a mouth to speak to be what you've called us to be, that we would be ministers of the gospel, that the world would know that we love you because of our love for each other, that we would be unified together, God, that we'd be willing to sacrifice for each other, that your name would be made great through our lives and that the church, the sleeping giant known as the church in America would wake up, that we would be what you have called us to be. God, that we would love unconditionally, that we would accept unconditionally with love those that you put in our life. And God, that we will, we will lay down our rights to have to be right and to have to win the argument and to have to, uh, to, have to be the ones that are understood and considered all the time. But God, we will come to you and we will be your people. And we, God, we know that with your spirit in us, it changes everything. Jesus, you, you did nothing wrong your whole life. All you did was heal people and minister to everybody you came in contact with. And yet you didn't even consider your equality with God something to be grasped, but you laid down your life for us. And I believe the reason you were able to do that was because you knew who you were and your spirit is in us. So God, as we know who we are in you, we can lay down our lives. I pray that we would be willing to do that, that we would give ourselves to the point of exhaustion if needed to help be the healing, the reconciliation, the unity that you've called us to be. And we thank you for it, Jesus. You are good in every way. You are faithful. You have never let anyone down in the history of the world, and you're not going to start now. We thank you that you have moved mountains for us, and we believe you're going to do it again in this nation and in our lives. We thank you, Jesus. God, move in our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts. Knock off the hardened parts of our hearts to see you 
Church, I'm just gonna ask you if you're comfortable just to lift your hands. Let's just worship the Lord. For, just give him 30 seconds of your best worship today. Just, just cry out and worship to him. God, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful, that your word is true, that your love is unconditional, that your mercies are new every morning in our lives, God. And I pray that would be real in us, that we would be able to extend mercy to those that we come in contact with. Jesus, be glorified through our lives. Be glorified in this church. Be glorified in this city and in this nation. Jesus, we put you at your rightful place. You are on the throne, and we ask that you would do your work from your throne. We bind the enemy and the strongholds that he has over this, over this city, over this state, over this world. In Jesus' name, we bind him, and we trust you, God, to do your work, Lord. We pray that you would silence the voice of the enemy and that, you, that, that your followers would rise up and be the men and women of God that you have called us to be, and that we would speak your truth, that we would be your voice for the, for the down and out, for the hurting, for the, for the uh, cast aside, for the oppressed, for the weak, for the needy, for the poor, that we would be what you have called us to be for them. That just as the good Samaritan did, God, that we would sacrifice whatever we have to do to make sure that that Samaritan is taken care of and we would go the extra mile, go above and beyond. We love you and we thank you, Jesus, because you did that for us. You did it for every one of us. So how can we not do it for the least of these? God, we praise you and we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, Lord. We love you. We love you, Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. Give God praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We serve a good God. Amen, church? He is good. He's, we're not alone in this. I know, I know your hearts have been heavy during these few weeks. I know it. There's a, there's a heaviness. There's a darkness that's hovering. We do not have to succumb to that. We can rise above that because of the Spirit of God in us. But we have to stay focused on Him. Focused on Him and on His Word. We can do that. God bless.